and welcome to Pedagodzilla, the pedagogic podcast with the pop culture core. Today we are answering the bloody stupid question, how do you create the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, muppetational community of practice? I'm Mike Collins, your host. I am drinking a cup of tea. I'm a learning designer at the Open University, imposter syndrome incarnate man with microphone. I'm joined by my capable co-host. I'm Mark Charles. I'm a senior learning designer from University of Durham. I also have a cup of tea and I've got a PhD in education. And a cup of tea. Your cup runneth over. <laughs> and we are joined by the cardinals of copy, the regents of right, the concierges of copyright. It's... Da, 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 da. <gasps> Hello, I'm Jane Secker. I'm a senior lecturer in educational development at City University. Also co-chair of the Alt Copyright and Online Learning Group and chair of the information literacy group i could go on forever could, actually. Yeah. yeah 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 got quite a, quite a few okay yeah. and a phd um, but not in education um and i'm chris morrison copyright and licensing specialist at the bodleian libraries uh i've got some letters not as many after my name as Jane, <laughs> uh, and i don't have a phd and she keeps bullying me to try and get me to do one but, uh, maybe who knows <laughs> one day one day i feel for you i feel for you yeah so all these all these all these doctorates pushing us around a eh, mark oh i'm sorry I just haven't come up with a different tagline. <laughs> I was going to boast about my roadcaster again, but I figured they'd be more jealous of that than of the PhD. <sighs> yeah, I am actually. <laughs> I think we all are. <laughs> and we are also joined by special guest. Why are there so many theories about learning? podcast for having me on today mm -hmm. that was fabulous that was absolutely fabulous i loved it thank you so much for that That was wonderful okay so chris jane um you are uh, obviously uh big movers and shakers in sort of you know the playful learning space which is where we met but also copyright copyright literacy is kind of your jam you guys founded copyright literacy the ice pops conference tell us all about it for people who may not have for the minority of people who haven't come across copyright literacy and the ice pops conference it's a way of life, isn't it? It is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's one of those things you just have to feel it, you know, it courses through you. <laughs> it, can you teach it? Can you learn it? You just have to kind of let the vibe seep in. <laughs> and I, so we've been doing it for a while, haven't we? We have. Yeah. We have. We could we could have a serious conversation about literacies. We could. We about could. why it's a literacy. We, okay, absolutely. Fine. We do we do spend quite a bit of time discussing copyright as a literacy or as part of other literacies. Yeah, yeah. So I guess that some of it is 
like traditionally both of us have worked in the copyright space i'd say for about 20 years or so in various guises yeah. maybe longer i started yeah. 1999 yeah that's that's about that's about the in time. music copyright in mu yeah yeah because yeah. i worked in the music industry you had a long career long in career, the music yeah. industry glamorous, until cool, it all became too cool. rock and roll and yeah. i had to move into libraries yes yeah. yes <laughs> which was equally as rock and roll absolutely Whereas I just spent a lot of time doing research and sitting on my own and reading books and doing a PhD and things like that until I discovered copyright. Mm. Um, if you go back 20 years ago, when people were learning about copyright, it was kind of this idea that you it was about the law and like you needed to know lots of stuff about how the law worked if you were going to digitise things, if you were going to work in libraries and make things available. Copyright was something, you know, you needed to kind of get your head around. And about 10 years ago, I guess, but we started to come across people that were starting to think about copyright in a slightly different way as a practice and as, as a kind of set of knowledge and then also skills and behaviours. So this idea that there is kind of stuff that the law just sets out really, really clearly is a bit of a myth in copyright because it's it's well, not that, very clear, is it, yeah, in many cases? It's, it's, no, it's an area of law. We're talking about the stuff, that the, the legal protection that there is for literature and culture, artworks, all that kind of stuff. It's protected by copyright and it is for many, many years, it's been traditionally something you would only really have to get involved in if you are in those industries. If you're mm. you know, looking to create and get remuneration for stuff um, that, that's been created and, you know, obviously big business. But then it's, it came into the education, research and library world when it came into everyone else's world through the digital revolution. Rather than I'd saying it's not just about the law. Well, it kind of, it's kind of about the law, but I think it's about how do you see what the law is? It's not just a set of black and white rules mm. that you can clearly follow it's it's very complex because the law legislation might say one thing but then people do another and copyright is a, a prime example of where what people want to know well what's the right way of doing it well the real world all sorts of stuff happens yeah and so like how do you get your head around that when sometimes the further you go into it and the more detail you get the more and more confusing it becomes yeah and i think that's what many people in our world found and i think we both have experienced that you go through multiple levels of something seeming that you're getting closer and closer to it. And even some of the big thinkers about copyright and copyright scholars say it's kind of evanescent. The closer you get to it, you think you're getting to the... And then it disappears and dissipates and, and then you mm. don't know where the hell you are and it's very disorienting. So I think us situating it in communities as a literacy, which is a cultural and communicative practice, understanding what people are trying to do... That's what made it came alive. And that's when we started coming up with different ways of trying to teach people about it and sharing some of our own confusions and frustrations with it. Yeah. And, and taking that different approach. Yeah. It's largely a, a way, isn't it, of regulating who's got control or access to particular types of... of... Information and culture. Yeah. And if you work in education and if you work in libraries as well, but particularly like if you're a teacher, what you've want to do is convey information and knowledge to your students yeah and that's where you start to kind of get into this well you know how much can you do that how much is copyright going to start impacting on you if you're playing music if you're showing films if you're taking bits of content that you want them to read and making that available to them because as soon as you 
start doing that in an online space, you know, it's potentially about sharing content, isn't it, more widely? Yeah, I mean, Mark, I know I've worked with sort of quite a bit of media in the past in my sort of higher ed career, and I know you have as well. It's, I mean, for me, copyright was always a bat that people beat you with to tell Mm. you why you couldn't do things Mm. and why things were hard. Yeah, it's always felt like it was gatekeeping it. I mean, one of the first projects I had was completely derailed by equity, you know, because they were sort of talking about performance rights and we wanted to show students examples of different performances and we couldn't do it because it contravened some rule that they'd come up with and that just felt, Mm. you know, you're a union and you should be on the left and you should be about looking at empowerment and emancipation and uh, helping students and moving people towards a position where they understood things and could participate in society and instead you're preventing them from doing that because you're worried about loss of little bit of performance fees yeah it really highlighted for me the inconsistencies and the incongruities between these different positions it was all the people that should be about sharing and learning and empowering students seemed to be the same people that were blocking you from doing your job which is teaching them and that that was my first and most frustrating experience of dealing with copyright really Mm. and because there's so much risk often sort of uh, described as being attached to it it's kind of got this reputation as a bit of a dark art uh, particularly in higher ed where everybody's sort of very very risk averse and then along you come establishing this really accessible community practice with a huge amount of energy and making it all much more so much more fun and accessible all i was going to say is one of the key the key things there is is the balance and the flexibility that actually exists within copyright law already and it's something that people are scared. It's kind of the unlocking the power that is actually designed within it to allow exactly what Mark was talking about, uses for educational purposes that are helping uh, and all of that emancipation and creative freedom of people who are in that position. You want to expose them to stuff. And it's not just about you know the, the exclusive rights holder having absolute total control of everything. But in order to kind of unlock that power, it's trying to get to the people who are kind of acting as gatekeepers and maybe those people have taken that role on themselves because they think they should be gatekeepers and and actually that's that's what we've been saying to people really i mean who are you benefiting let's think kind of critically about this yeah Mm. yeah i think when i started working in the area as well one of the things for me was i just had quite a strong feeling that there was just a lot of unnecessary worry and fear about things, you know, with a lot of people going around sort of saying, well, you can't do this and you can't do that. Mm. And it was a lot of putting barriers in people's way. And I always kind of think when the sort of tipping point for that with me was when I first discovered Creative Commons licences. And I felt like at that point, suddenly I stopped having to be this kind of gatekeeper And I could actually start to have really interesting conversations with people about open licensing and about sort of sharing resources in a way that seemed to align more closely with what most teachers actually wanted to do. I mean, I still find it quite surprising that so few of them actually seem to understand open licensing and creative commons, even like 10 years later or so. But, you know, I think it's a a constant thing you have to work on because it's just not something that I think has entered mainstream consciousness yet you know in some areas it has yeah 
to me. I mean, one of the things we did when we were talking to the intellectual property office, they were talking about creating an IP education framework. So that's the government, the UK government's the body that looks after all types of intellectual property, including copyright. But we, when when they were starting to sort of show us things that they thought should go into the school curriculum and things that, you know, you ought to know at different key stages, that we could see immediately, well, okay, so you're going to teach kids lots of stuff about how copyright works, but why aren't we just teaching them about open licensing and creative commons at that point? You know, if they want to start remixing stuff and they want to understand what it might mean to create stuff themselves and how they own it. and Money and power is the answer to that. Well, yeah, we know, we know <laughs> the reason why, but it was a small victory that we did get that. That's, that was something that we argued for, and it is yeah. in the framework. And I guess on the other, on the other side, though, there's um, an element which isn't about money and power, it's about survival. You know, if you're an artist and someone's lifted your work and that's how you could have made some money to keep, and make, keep on making art, yes. then that's when it does become an issue and it's understanding the difference between those things really that yeah yeah because how many times would somebody using your artwork in a teaching situation you know lead to a a poor author or an artist starving you know it's very rare really i think the reality is that you know in many cases there's lots of reasons why you don't get fair reward for creating art and being a writer these you know unless you're a big name writing blockbusters yeah it's just so hard to make money. And that's, I think, where I found it frustrating that there's a sort of somehow there's like this kind of, oh, well, we're standing up for the rights of creators. But in fact, most of the time, huge amounts of the money is going to line the profits of big organisations, big corporations. They've got yeah. quite a lot of money already. Yeah, they don't need any more. Yeah, yeah. And if it was going back to, to artists and, and authors, I think I would... Yeah. We do have a framework that does work to support people. It, but the systems are, are. I found the squeak. Oh, you found the squeak. Excellent. I found the squeak. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I've just found Lucy's squeak. I just, I just saw actual regret etched into <laughs> Chris's face there for a second. But the point I was trying to make was, I think, and, yeah, and it's probably work, why, in I some ways, why it works. Sometimes why it works is as being a double act when the other isn't being too annoying is that (laughs) we don't just come with one viewpoint i do actually see things from the other perspective having worked for an organization that did actually collect and distribute royalties to composers and songwriters not enough to the ones that that were not the mega mega stars i was just going to lead into oh right okay segue i was going to segue yeah when you were when you were just talking about annoying each other yeah i I thought that was a good kind of segue into thinking about bert and ernie Okay. And the Muppets. <laughs> oh, the Muppets. Oh, you're right. That is that is a good segue. So, first part of the show where we break down our question, how do you create the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, Muppetational community of practice? Part one, the question. Okay, so the Muppets and community of practice. Very quickly introduce the Muppets. They were Jim Henson's fabulous creation, uh, Kermit the Frog, Miss Piggy, Gonzo the Great, Dr. Bunsen, Honeydew, Beaker the Swedish Chef, Fozzie Bear, Sweetum, Statler and Waldorf, to name but a few. Starting all the way back in 1955, but really coming to prominence in the 1970s, particularly in the UK, as The Muppet Show. Uh, Since then, there's been a few revivals of The Muppet Show, some all right movies, some incredible movies, including uh, Muppets Treasure Island and Christmas Carol. 
and some pretty good ones in the 2000s. Um, and they are just a, a wonderful international, internationally recognized franchise, uh, much beloved by uh, all ages. Vital communication and teaching tool for, in Sesame Street, which is uh, reflavored across the world. The Muppets, what do people know about them? What are people's memories and impressions of them? I bloody love them. I bloody love them. I, I think there's, you just see them and immediately you just go, oh, it's the Muppets. Oh, it's, it's, it's being a child of the 70s and the 80s particularly yeah, yeah. as well. Uh, it was like the highlight to, you know, sit down and watch the Muppet show and, yeah, the characters. Nostalgia the, of the proper family entertainment. That, that old cliche, isn't it? Oh, we would yeah. all sit around and there's something for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> And there's a guest star on. and Although my family will tell you at great length how every time what I could refer to as the two old men oh, came yes. on, yeah, that yeah. I cried like all the time, apparently. <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of guessing I wasn't 14 when this happened because I don't remember the crying. Mm. I think I was about three. But apparently I cried. Every- I loved The Muppet Show until they appeared. And then I just, oh, really? it had to be switched off. Yeah, because they kind of terrified me. Statler and Waldorf. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I found out something interesting about those two, which which is actually quite poignant, Ooh. which is in one of the backs of the backstage area, there's an old faded poster for Waldorf and Statler. They mm. used to be musical a musical act. So you could see all of their interjections as just sour grapes because somebody else is now doing on the stage that they used to be performing on. And that's, oh. that's really tragic. That's wonderful. So I can understand now why you're crying because of that kind of pathos behind. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't the uncanny valley. It was literally you were just crying at the tragedy of the situation of these once great. <laughs> oh, I love it. But there is, there's something there to return to when we do get onto the other part of the discussion about those two characters. Should we hold that thought? For the three listeners who um, who have never encountered them up, it's Statler and Waldorf are the people who sit up in the balconies and heckle the show, and they're wonderful. The two old men, it was good, it was terrible, it was all right, it was short. Oh, ho, ho, ho. I mean, they're just, oh, they're wonderful. <laughs> they're just so I'm, I'm wonderful. I'm going to cry. I'm oh, sorry. Oh, no. I'm going to just see them ingrained in my memory. I'm terrified. Yeah, well, that's the thing. They're all ingrained in one's memory, I I mean, for Mm. me, it was because it would be ATV, so that's Associated Television, and that was our regional TV. ITV was divided up into regions and different. Oh, yes. Yeah. Anglia TV. That's what we used to watch. Anglia and uh, Thames Television. And they were in Granada, and they were all kind of had these little signature things at the beginning. So there's a kind of a sense of ownership being from the Midlands that actually that was our television program that had been made (laughs) in the Midlands, paid for by (laughs) ATV. And Lou Grade, who father of Michael Grade, so was the guy that kind of saw the potential for them and brought them over to the UK and got them making the TV, you know, the Muppet stuff over here, really. Going back to it, I used to have a, one of my favourite ever VHS things, which I, I couldn't find on DVD, so I can't have seen it in ages, was a compilation of Gonzo stuff called Gonzo's Muppet Weird Stuff. <laughs> and looking back on that, I realised, I mean, I always identified with Gonzo, but then, but then... You look at the compilation of the things that he did, and it was like there's a bit where he's dancing with cheese, and somebody asked, I think it's Kermit, asked him, "Is it a female cheese?" And she said, "It's going to be. A, it's a female cheese. Can be a male cheese. That'd be weird. <laughs> the idea that a female cheese makes it okay." And then he's obsessions with chickens, and then and then on the outro, there's a lava lap, and he goes, "Oh great, they're, they're looking at the lava lap now. We can start necking." 
So you know that off camera, Gonzo is is just getting it on with the chicken. And <laughs> you realise looking back how absolutely surreal a lot of that stuff humour was as well. I also wanted to mention the, the biography by Brian J. Jones, Jim Henson's biography, which I read a couple uh, of years ago. And, and did you read it as well? Yeah, yeah you yeah. made me read it. I made you read it. You forced it. me. You like that, sat that, me down and forced me to read that it. That is brilliant. It's fascinating <laughs> to actually hear that. Yeah, the story no, no, no. about how it came the, to be. And the kind of creativity. And we were going through a phase of reading quite a lot of books, weren't we, about creativity and... Yeah, and I think there are some basic fundamental creative phenomena that just happen. And so I think the Beatles, I think Monty Python, and I think Muppets, they come along and they just explode a particular area. Mm. And I think for me, the Muppets is that for mm. family, children's entertainment building on all that stuff that came before so I, I just think there's just something about Jim Henson he's in, and Star Wars those are just massive seismic mm. cultural mm. linchpins so I, I think yeah from that perspective they, they resonate well the, the Muppets in particular I mean particularly because they somehow almost accidentally created this big meta universe where everybody's sort of existing in this slightly parallel reality where it's just like ours except that people are a bit nicer and there's just Muppets pottering around mm. doing things well, for a start, the people in The Muppet Show are performing a show and you see backstage and stuff. But also mm. Sesame Street, the people from The Muppet Show will go to Sesame Street to visit and people will show up in movies and they'll break the fourth wall repeatedly. They'll keep on, you know, it's everything's happening in this really beautiful but oddly consistent meta universe, which manages to span all age groups. I mean, there's definitely an episode we need to do at some point in the future just about the pedagogy of Sesame Street because some of it's really wonderfully thought out. I have to say, oh, Sesame Street, great. But I think as a kid, I found it a bit... No, I, I didn't. I didn't really watch it. I think it was no, because, I it's because it was kind of too American. Yeah. Whereas I think going yeah. back to what Mark was saying, The Muppets was kind of British, even though it was yes. American. It, yes. You know, it had the sort of... It was more relatable. Yes. The British yeah. humour came in. And of course, it built on a musical tradition, which I know America mm. had strongly as well. But Yeah, it was a very familiar format, wasn't it? There's... Very interesting thing, actually, just saying about how it's the Muppet Show itself is quite British. I have this long-standing theory that the reason that all of the best British comedy is good British comedy is because it embraces crapness. And I do think <laughs> the Muppets do crap really well. Like when things just look a little bit shonky around the edges. You know, it's it's kind of like Red Dwarf, where it, this is clearly a washing machine and this is a bit of tumble dryer, <laughs> but it works because you're embracing the crapness. Um, and I think it's something that Americans have always always struggle to because they always want things to be shiny and cool and he's living in a penthouse apartment and he's a success and this is a comedy show about him whereas you know the british equivalent would be i'm a frog i've got a bit of a complicated relationship with a pig and my show's going wrong <laughs> stephen fry said the difference between american and british sitcoms and of course there's exceptions to this is that american sitcoms you've got the hero surrounded by a bunch of idiots and in the british sitcoms the hero is the idiot and that's the person that you identify with, and they're surrounded by competent people. It's that sort of essential difference between the two cultures. We identify with the, sh with the people who are crap. <laughs> it's that segue into communities of practice. <laughs> <laughs> Jane, Jane, I've got to thank you so much for keeping this, this podcast on the, uh, on the track. This is a problem we're having too much interesting to think. So, yeah, let's talk. Let's, I think we've definitely, I mean, we could talk about Muppets forever. Communities of practice. I guess let's just start out with what is a community of practice? What are kind of the defining features? I know we've covered this in the podcast before, but it was, to be frank, a long time ago and before we got mm. the format nailed down. What I'd really like to talk about is what is a community of practice? I'd also like to just talk about quick, briefly what is establishing a community of practice? How does one go about it? So who wants to pick up what is? Do you want me to do that? Yeah, I can do that. 
Yeah, so, I mean, community practice, the idea comes from love and Wenger, but, I mean, it's an informal way, I guess, of learning that happens within professions fundamentally. There's these kind of three aspects that you have to have for a community of practice. So you have to have a domain, which is like a shared area of interest. You have to have, obviously, a community, which is a group of people generally, not could be Muppets, could be puppets, but mm-hmm. usually people. And then you have to have a, a practice, which, as I say, it's like it could be people who work as radiographers. Yeah. It could be people who work as, I don't know, civil engineers. It but could it, be. It could be. I mean, it doesn't have to be professional to the extent that it has to be someone's living. It's anything that they do where they have a shared thing that they do. They all do the same thing. A group and they of want. podcasters who love mucking about. Could be. Yeah. 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 I like it. The key thing there is that they are sharing their practice with each other and it's a way of unlocking tacit knowledge, things that aren't necessarily written down that yeah. you can only find out from talking to people so that you've got the the people who are established in that field and in their practice and have been doing it for a long time. And then you've got the newer people coming in with new ideas but still haven't necessarily learned those unwritten rules Mm. about how things operate in that work. So in a way, it's about negotiating the development of that practice over a period of time as well. And I'm calling back to, I thought the the initial podcast you did on this was excellent. So I would say to refer back to that one. Oh, wow. Bloody hell. uh, World of Warcraft thing that you did, Mm. um, talking about trajectories and, and all the sort of where people are and boundary objects and stuff. I guess hand over to Mark at this point, because I remember you were giving some explanation of that on the first podcast. I think the one, the phrase that I always like to throw out is legitimate peripheral participation, which is basically just hanging around at the edge until you're really sure what's going on. Lurking. Yeah, lurking. Yeah, and that's actually mm. that's, that's completely valid, and particularly if you're in education where you see people not saying anything. Uh, and then relate equating that to not participating is really unfair because they're still thinking and they contribute in other ways. And they're learning, aren't they? They're learning a lot. And they are learning, which is key, yeah. I suppose the problem is that people aren't learning from them. Yeah. One of the things you'd always like is for everybody to learn from each other. But what I was really interested in when we were doing the planning for this was that the way that you were talking about what you've seen, that's only a starting point and there are ways that in practice... It doesn't follow necessarily those absolute rules that they laid down, and that might be maybe where we would go is to look at... Yeah, and, I mean, we can talk a bit about some of the experiences we've had setting up communities of practice. I mean, we we both, in previous institutions, had a go at setting up an internal copyright community of practice. We have, yeah. We also created a, a sort of regional community of practice. These are, are actually all about copyright as well yeah yeah yeah. um so we created one called sherlock which was a clever acronym for something that none of us none of us could actually (laughs) remember the h and the a were definitely about higher education education, and there was something to do with london and the southeast in there but i think the k was knowledge i think we just pieced together (laughs) copyright knowledge yeah 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 yeah, yeah. there we go but Uh, really i mean we, we set those up but i think to be fair we inherited a community of practice. We it, did. It wasn't as if we said, absolutely, here's, you know, Wenger Trainer, here's the, here's the handbook. So the, the community was already there. And yes. there was already a very, very active discussion list of people answering, asking and answering questions about copyright in higher education because it 
as we said at the outset, it's something that you can't get away from. It was probably created about, was it 2000? Yeah. 2001? Something like that. As a gist mail discussion list. As a discussion list. So it is a community. But then what we saw is, you know, a kind of a real desire amongst the people there to learn more from each other or to find out more. And... That over time we we developed the the, the localized communities because that's an easier way of getting together. Um, but then that was before the world changed. Mm. At which point, you know, what we probably wouldn't have thought was something feasible to do became the only way mm. that we could really stay in touch with each other. And so our community of practice developed through setting up webinars, and then we just found that the desire for people to come together and to have these conversations was there and just consistently. So we just did our 53rd webinar of copyright at a time of crisis, <sighs> crossed out me... crisis, time of uncertainty. That's yeah. what we've called Transition. it. So in just those three phases, you've got the original JISC mail discussion group. Then you'd got the, the localized communities of practice mm-hmm. where you kind of thought that, that there would be more interaction and more support because people were seeing yeah. each other. And then you move that online. Yeah. Were there different feels or different natures and different requirements for facilitation to keep those existing as yeah. communities of practice? Were they the same sort of community practice or were they? did they have a different essential nature those, in those three stages? I think one of the things when we took over that disc mail list, we'd both been on it for quite a number of years and we had seen a bit of behaviour, going back to the Muppets, of that mm. kind of slightly <laughs> heckling people from yeah. the... <laughs> backstage or, or yeah. and, and we'd seen some behaviors on there that weren't always maybe as supportive of new people coming into the community yeah. so you know it's a list where there's a lot of people that knew a lot about copyright and so sometimes there's some let's show off about how much i know that you don't know yeah. i mean people actually would say to us when we met at events oh i'm too scared to post on that list Oh, that's never good. Oh my God. Yeah, and we, we just felt like we need to change this list. If we're going to take it over, we don't want a list where people no. feel scared to post. And and even it was at a time before I joined the list, but there was actually somebody that was removed from it because of the fact that they were effectively heckling people. And, mm. and, and the point that they were picking up was that everyone was too cautious and too meek. And you lot need to stop doing this. And God, why did why did and getting frustrated? Oh, not another stupid question about it, it, something that's blindingly obvious. Which kind is of thing. really unhelpful. Alan killed. Creative Commons four point It's attribution. Oh, <laughs> oh, 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 oh. <laughs> so yeah, so so that was happening, and and we knew for a while we wanted to change the dynamic, and there was that moment where it was us creating this localized regional community of practice that we wanted to put our stamp personality on stamp on and say and say this is a community of practice it is about getting everyone to join and we and contributing no matter where you are and it's on not that come journey. along and listen to jane and chris and well, some that, of the other great copyright experts tell you what the answer and, is and that's where we that's, <laughs> that's, that's our challenge. biggest challenge but there were some challenges there there was but, quite a lot of meetings where... there were some meetings where the, the membership of that group was growing and because of the natural Around in the southeast of England, there are quite a large number of institutions. Yeah, and so people were able to make it to the meetings. The meetings were getting larger and larger, and then one we... meeting there was a ridiculous amount uh, of cake. And the, Do you remember? Well, people would bring cake. There was an amazing cake buffet that we used to put on for it. But, there was oh, no wow. catering because there was no budget for this. But we'd say to people, "Bring a cake." 
just piles of cake and then everybody's staring and looking at us and expecting us to tell them what's the answer yeah and then <laughs> indigestion <laughs> the fact that it was a community before you could maybe you could argue it was just a community of interest before i mean we looked a little bit at what the difference was between a community of interest and a community of yeah. practice so it was a group of people that had an interest in a similar subject the thing that we were trying to do was to sort of get people to recognise that it was a way that they could learn and develop their knowledge. And it wasn't just about, I'm going to ask a question out here and, you know, one of the experts on the group is just going to give me the answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, 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 and that is a little bit how the list had probably operated up until then. Yeah. That it was, there was a, a right answer and that it was just a matter of asking the question so that you got the answer rather than sharing experiences more. And I think when we started that experience of us being in a room with other people and everyone kind of looking to us for the answers, sort of created it by wanting to be there answering questions and, mm. and doing having a lot of, this is the answer, this is the answer. And if it was, okay, so that's the person that's always going to give the answer. Mm then we we needed to move away from that to make it really valuable and introducing more voices into it mm. so that it wasn't always just somebody's going to come along and tell you what the answer is. It will be a, there are a range of different valid ways of doing stuff. But Mark was talking about that. Did you call it legitimate peripherals? Participation. Participation, yeah, the lurking, lurking thing. Lurking, just lurking, yeah. That is, that is what huge numbers of people do on that list. That's what yeah. a lot of people did when they came to our events as well, our, our yeah. community of practice meetings, didn't yeah, they? Yeah. We'd sort of, we'd be kind of getting a front, bit frustrated, like, why are they sitting there with a notebook out, writing it all down? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You've kind of also... Because you went and wrote a bloody book called Copyright and E-Learning, which is the only one on the subject... <laughs> And then you got me to help you write the second edition. It made people so, think I knew something exactly. about it. It's amazing, actually, what you can do. It's all smoke and mirrors. <laughs> so it's providing a behaviour for people to model and providing cake. Yeah. And those two things in combination, is that that's kind of what set the scene for the, the sort of community of practice you wanted. Yeah. And I think I think it's really interesting because we've now, it's gone online. We've tried to kind of bring, because during the pandemic everybody was... Um, I mean, we were already using playful approaches um, to copyright before the pandemic. But I think when we brought that community online, what we wanted to do was bring some of the flavours of our Ice Pops conference yeah. into an online webinar, partly because I think we felt it was the right approach to take when people were quite stressed. And what they wouldn't want is a very, very serious, dry well, we kind of created, so Ice Pops, which is the International Copyright Literacy Event with Playful Opportunities for Practitioners and Scholars. It's it is a bit the, like the Muppet it, Show. It, it, well, it's a bit like the Muppet well, Show. Well, we'll, we'll <laughs> maybe get to that in a moment. But that, 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 I think, was part of our developing the community of practice approach that up until that point, if you wanted to talk about copyright and how it, it impacted teaching and learning, education, research, and all that stuff, you were going to find yourself at a pretty dry event mm. there are you know it's going to be presentation after presentation briefings where you see a lot of bullet points on powerpoint slides yes and not to say that that doesn't happen at ice pops but is when we invent, uh, created the copyright the card game which is our first game that we created for teaching copyright and then our publishing trap game board game 
Mm. It's about scholarly communication. We wanted to see if there were others that had their things to share. I think that that's the moment when kind of turned what we did into a show because everything went shit. <laughs> Everyone got <laughs> locked up in their homes, didn't have anywhere to go. And we thought, right, let's get people going. Let's put a bit more oomph into it. Yeah. And let's, let's bring the silly theme tunes and the dressing up and the mucking about into the, you know, is everyone okay yeah. kind of thing. But um, for, for us, I think it was just reverting to thinking about all that stuff we'd been talking about and then being inspired not solely by the Muppets, but by everything we'd seen about what makes things entertaining. I think we we felt it was a temporary thing mm. rather than something that's actually really, really galvanised and enhanced. It started to shift for us in our experience of yeah. having a community of practice. We were saying, right, we've come up with this, but we're not the only ones, are we? Everybody else is having fun teaching other people this thing that they actually, even when they started finding it a bit boring and a bit scary at, at first, actually it's really quite interesting when you get into it and look at all the contradictions and all that stuff. All this time, every time we got people together, we were developing this sense of community. And someone said to us, the person who handed over the list to us said, came to an event we did and it said, it, it felt like it was family. It felt like we developed something where, you know, everybody was was actually part of something. Arguing, hating each other. <laughs> Slamming doors. Yeah. yeah. I didn't ask to be born, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I've just been taking some notes while we've been going through. So, I mean, the shift from the kind of the almost Q&A style uh, list that you had towards something more inclusive and dialogic, the way that you yourselves modelled the kind of behaviours that you'd want to see in the community that you're in. So modelling your sort of social behaviours and your interactions with one another, also introducing more of your pers own personalities, uh, playful approaches and uh, inviting others to, you know, uh, introduce their own authentic selves into that and establishing that kind of that family, that family feel, that real community feel, but also critically providing cake and getting other people to bring cake, mm -hmm. which really can't be under underestimated there's definitely we need to do the pedagogy of cake at some point mark because i do think it's yeah is there anything in there that you think i've missed is there anything that you want to expand on the idea that it's not just a community if you get it working right it's a family mm. i know they overuse the f word in hollywood at the moment but there is something familial that you know it's a sort of security maybe that people feel in messing up in front of other people and yeah knowing that people always have your back rather than than trying to stick a knife in it and I guess that's that's the difference, really. <laughs> Good families license media with each other. Okay, so we've talked about the Muppets, we've talked about community practice, and we've identified some of the things that help you form, stoke, make, empower, cakeify um, a community of practice. Let's bring those two things together now in the second part of the show, where we actually answer our bloody stupid question. Part two, the answer. So, how do you create the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, muppetational community of practice? Go! Yeah, so the Muppets, they have a leader. They have somebody who is organising and coordinating it. Kermit is in charge. I think even though he finds it incredibly stressful to bring it all together. There are lots of parallels. You've got a load of other people that have got something quite different to bring to it. And you've got your kind of regulars that come on and do their thing. Yeah. They have people who come on and do their act and do their turn and as we were, said earlier on, some of it's quite shit. And it doesn't matter if it's shit because <laughs> yeah. it's just part of the thing, isn't it? It's that the, the whole is made up of all the individual parts, all the individual acts. Yes. Yeah. However difficult they are, 
and however demanding Piggy might be or how weird Gonzo might be or how... Or how bad Foz's jokes are or whatever. Yeah. Giving them that space and supporting them. Yeah. You get so much more out of people by just giving them the, you know, the, the license to do what they want to do. And that's far better than actually trying to constrain them into what you think is the right thing to do. Because ultimately, you will just get more motivated people. I mean, the one thing none of the Muppets lack is motivation and mm. also confidence. They're all, they're all supported in actually doing their thing, aren't they? Yeah, I, I, think, I, think, that is, I think that is really important. I think it, we, we, it's trying to get everyone to bring in, to, to contribute, isn't it, as well? Rather than mm. just doing the lurking that we were talking about, it is... It... But there is a... There's, I think you still have a fair... you still got those other more minor characters that don't come into it quite as much who are there mm. around the periphery. So mm. I think that, that there are there are those in there. Mm. Yeah, the dreadful Cabbage Patch baby things They're with their <laughs> horrible, horrible <laughs> Uncanny Valley faces. But also, but you're right, it's, it's I mean, as you were saying with your shift from um, the kind of the, the Q&A style kind of the list of questions and answers towards something more inclusive and dialogic. I mean, we see so much backstage in The Muppets mm. and it's people going up to Kermit going, oh, Kermit, I want to try this in my act. And, you know, it's people trying things, coming back and going, mm. oh, how do you think that went? And it's kind of like, it's there's reflective practice. It's a discussion. It's a dialogue. Kermit is kind of the, the orchestrator, the facilitator in the middle of it. He's not necessarily the one dictating it it's so inclusive and participative it's reflective yeah and it's it's um it's such a it's such a cool safe space i mean you know gonzo will inevitably set himself up for some sort of high flying daredevil stunt it'll inevitably go wrong yeah he knows he'll be back on next week come it's not going to sack him yeah you know they're having a lovely time they've created this wonderful space dialogic reflective space so that is about you know saying that failure is also okay isn't it which is really important i mean yeah. you know there's, there's so many events you go to where it's just all about good news story everyone telling them about their amazing mm. projects and what went wrong and actually we've got to learn from all the stuff that didn't go well every time we do one of our webinars we go oh, next time we'll do this oh we should have sorted this out we should have set that bit up beforehand it's just well, it's, it's it, not perfect, no, and I don't no, think it's. I don't think it's, we should try to make it perfect. Actually, I think we need to say see some of the backstage and I think another, stuff. Another aspect of what the Muppets do is they have a guest star on, so they have a yeah. guest star, and and they're never quite sure how the guest star is actually going to fit into the overall thing. Yeah. We know we want them on, but it's not like they just come on and do their thing and it's totally separate. Just remembered one of the. I mean, that was one of the key things about the Muppet Show, wasn't it? Was that you would have a, yeah, a yeah. guest Celebrities. star. On. A big yeah. celeb, and you were never going to know until they started how they were going to interact with the Muppets. Yeah. You know, I think it was Michael, well, obviously it was Michael Caine in Christmas Carol, and he said, yeah. I just treated them like they were fellow performers. And you can see that, that even though it's Michael Caine and he's an action star and all this sort of thing. He's talking to a frog. He's talking to a frog as a fellow performer, and you absolutely believe the frog exists because Michael Caine believes the frog exists one who was sitting there and you see this in the outtakes and things like that where you the performer just forgets that they're talking to a puppet and that's when that real magic happens in in the show really yeah <sighs> i would love to have seen some of behind the scenes stuff for that or oh, kermit do you think i'm about to bugger up the line for that one <laughs> just, <laughs> just kermit no, I... and gonzo sharing a roll up at the end of the day <laughs> just, but i am remembering that that is some of the that was some of the best bits of the shows when those guests would come on and they would sort of basically just be in amongst all that chaos and you know mm. some, sometimes 
maybe starting off trying to take themselves a bit too seriously and fairly quickly having to just... But for me, I think it goes back to when we were first talking about communities of practice, a difference between that and like a meeting where you've got a set of objectives mm. and, and here's a definite thing that we're going to do. It's much looser than that. And I guess with the Muppets, they did have an objective. They, they needed to put out a show and they needed to fit into a certain format. But really, they hadn't quite worked out what they were going to do until the last minute. And it was all yeah. pulling that together. And so the sense of spontaneity and, and danger they made it work week after week. Mm. And it's authentic as well. And that when you phrase it like that, it feels much more authentic because who isn't in their professional practice really just kind of cobbling it all together at the last minute in a bit of a frantic <laughs> panic? <laughs> yeah. Can I also ask about the Jim Henson biography? Because I get the biography, because I get the impression that was also a community, community of practice that he built and then had all these like creative geniuses and somehow created a platform for them to all come together to create the Muppets. Is that how it? Is that how that worked? Yeah, he absolutely was. And I think what, one thing that's really interesting is the way in which he very early on got involved in the whole puppetry marionette world and, and for the whole of his life became a huge patron of that and, and actually spent a lot of time developing other puppeteers, partly to help his own venture and enterprise, but also just to, to be part of that community. And I think... He, the, the sense you get from the biography is it's not so much that he loved puppets. It was that he loved the creativity and mm. that community and the other people. So definitely. And I think that's that's one of the things that you know, he attracted people to him and he, he inspired people to do things and share innovations that they had found back with him. And hence the, you know, the creation of all of the special effects things and, and, the, and the Henson workshop that he set up. Um, so that I think it is a big part and of it, so. balancing lots of stuff like the way he worked with Frank Oz isn't it as well that was quite important I think yes yeah so at the core of there were some key relationships at the core of that but there was a a wider community of people both within you know the Henson organization and and, and you know everyone being influenced by him but him giving a lot of of his own experiences back so I yeah. think that was a big part of his story as well mm. Mm. Yeah, so if I can see the parallels there. And the reason why I wanted to ask about that was because we did a little bit of research, didn't we, on where the practice, the community started to fall apart a bit with Steve Whitmire. And you actually read up on that a bit, didn't you, Chris? And that was an interesting yes. parallel as yeah. well. Yeah, so Steve Whitmire, who took over the voice of Kermit, who after Jim Henson's death was was Kermit. And then as the sort of Henson empire moved on and was acquired by... Uh, ultimately by Disney, and they took the show into a different direction, there were clearly creative differences between Steve Whitmire and, and, and those people who were actually pushing the Muppets in a different direction. Is that something you've had to deal with as well? I mean, in view? I mean, we've had to deal with some challenging situations with people who have different opinions. I think probably mostly where we want to make, keep things light and we want to make them fun and enjoyable. Mm. And there are many people in our world who are more of the Statler and Waldorf. And we definitely had that. We, we really have. Yeah. I mean, in fact, when we first did our first podcast, we had somebody, you know, in our field send us quite an unpleasant message saying, you know, I like what you do. So much of it is great, but this just is severe self-indulgence and I can't see the value in it. 
Oh, good grief. So Don't like, listen then, you birds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Lord yeah. above. Okay. Well, I'm really glad you told us that. That's that's really helpful. Yeah. yeah. So, and then we went, we, yeah, we went through a real period of, and we, we when we spoke to a colleague of Jane's, who, who is a podcasting lecturer who really knows about this, and Richard, who gave us the advice about how to go about doing podcasting, and we told him that story. He says, yeah, one, two, three, all together, fuck off. <laughs> and it's like, ah, oh, that makes me feel better. So, yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But you know, there we are. There are there are tricky people to deal with. But I think mm. it's just part of learning that that's part of a community. And there's always going to be conflicts. People wanting to push things in a different way. Yeah, but also also we are deliberately trying to do something different. Part of why we wanted to do this, we've actually written um, an article that is about to come out in the the Journal of Play in Adulthood, haven't Not we? Not the Journal of Adult Play. No, no, no. That would be a different article altogether. But. <laughs> In that article, one of the things we kind of did quite a bit of reflecting on was, well, why did we go down this route? And it was because we deliberately did want to create a shift in the community. And I think when you want to change people's practice, we wanted to change the way they were thinking about copyright. I had a real feeling when I was new in the field that it was as if it was it, like you said it's a dark art it's like this rarefied special knowledge that certain people were allowed to have and other people needed to be to butt out of you yeah. know stop trying to contribute to this because this is this is important stuff and only experts can talk about this sort of stuff. You've got Statler and Waldorf you've got Sam the Bald Eagle all those kinds mm. of characters were the ones I think that were pretty much in charge that people would look to these very severe authoritarian figures and then yeah and and i i felt like that's firstly that's not my style at all like people started asking me to go and do a talk about copyright and they would immediately say oh well that's quite refreshing the way because you know i'm not going to stand at the front and just say and this is what the law says yeah, and, and you, you don't have to be that playful or that weird to make quite a big difference on no. what came before. We're not really doing anything other than standing up and saying the same stuff, I think. Yeah. But is this the, is this the difference between a lectern of practice and a community of practice? Yeah. I yeah, think maybe. Is. Yeah. I'm a big fan. It's nothing to do with the Muppets. It's Brene Brown, aren't I? I'm a big fan of um, her work. And one of the things that she talks about is this going into the arena. And I just love it because she's basically like, when you go out there and you put yourself into the arena and, you know, you're laying yourself open to have people throw things at you. And the people that aren't there in the arena, who's sort of in the cheap sheets, throwing these, these you know, shots at you, you, you have to learn to ignore them. I just, you know, I just think like, I don't really care if everyone else thinks I'm mad and that they don't agree with what I'm doing. I think it's the right thing to do. I'm just going to yeah. carry on doing it. Yeah. And they can yeah. stay there in their cheap sheets. Cheap sheets? Cheap sheets. Cheap yeah. sheets. Cheap sheets. Cheap, yeah. sheets. cheap, yeah. cheap. seats. Seats. Yeah. Throwing things at me. And it, it's kind of, yeah, that's okay. And ever, not everyone's going to ever like everything you do. And yeah. it, it, we're not saying... There isn't a place for being quite serious about copyright as yeah. well. If we go to the intellectual property office and have to talk to some government ministers, we don't take the puppets. No. I, f I feel like we're starting to naturally gravitate towards some ways that people can uh, yes. apply these to uh, stoke slash galvanise slash boost their own community practice. So shall we move on to that in the yeah. third and final part of the show? Let's do it. Did we answer our question? Would somebody like to summarise the answer to our question? I'll repeat, I'll repeat the question. How do you create the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, muppetational community of practice? 
and feel free if you'd like to do this from your perspective or from the how do the Muppets do it. So I would say you come up with a, a format and you fit into that lots of different voices of people all working together in the same area and don't worry about the fact that it's probably going to be quite chaotic. Get in a bunch of guests to help give you new ideas and just let it happen and try to have fun and bring cake. Yay! <laughs> Great answer. Okay, let's pull some tips for your own practice out on this in the third and final part of the show. Part three. Practical tips. Who'd like to throw in your, your top tip? I would say it's a cliche. Be yourself. Mm. You know, the, the, the point about a community of practice is you are sharing your practice. You're sharing how you actually do it. If you then try to bring along some other version of how you think it should be because you're in a formalized teaching training environment, then you're not actually helping the people. Because as we said earlier on, the real world in which you do your practice, you're always making it up as you go along based on your own experience and your, your own responses to, to what's happening. So set something up where you can be yourself. Yeah, and, being and, authentic. And being yeah. authentic. Which, yeah. yeah. But I think also following on from that as well, I would say share the stuff that where you don't know the answer, share the stuff where, you know, it didn't quite go as well. The community is about sharing stories and it can't just all be good news, good news, good news, can it? I think some of the time people need to hear that actually maybe you got it wrong or that you weren't 100% sure in a particular situation because that makes you then more authentic to them, doesn't it, rather than the, the kind of person at the front who's just got all the answers. Mark? I suppose, although there's not a person at the front who knows all the answers, a community doesn't just arise naturally. You need, well, I mean, like Kermit is literally the guide on the side, isn't he? Yeah. I think that you shouldn't be underestimating the role of a person that can not necessarily put their stamp on it, but is there to model great behavior, provide those that platform for other people to have their voices and their say, and actually can then shut down people who don't want to let other people have a say. There's a balancing act between those two things, isn't there? A balancing act that may or may not involve chickens and cheese and gonzo. <laughs> <laughs> it's Communities don't just arise from, from nothing. They do need a Jim or a Kermit or a Chris and Jane at the side, yeah. keeping things moving. Oh, that's so nicely tied up, Mark. Also, you absolute git. I wish I hadn't asked you to go next because I was going to do something much less articulately in the same direction. <laughs> Bugger. <laughs> I'll cop out for now, but just say, provide cake. <laughs> like, bring Gross. cake. It's good to keep the blood sugar up. Being in a maintaining a community of practice isn't something necessarily that happens passively. That's one of the things that I've kind of got from this. You to put a huge amount of work in it. It's Kermit's job. Um, and I think there's sometimes at an institutional level, this kind of assumption that, oh, we'll get people together and they'll form this community practice and they'll, they'll teach themselves. And actually, you need to recognize that there is an amount of effort needed to actually kind of facilitate the proper working of it and make sure that it's it's healthy and, and is producing the kind of things that you want to. It's allowing your practitioners to develop and share their practice. Um, so good God, let them expense their cake at the very least. Give them the time to engage with it and let them put the cake on expenses. <laughs> Does Lucy, did Lucy and Eddie want to say anything? 
we've done this entire episode, listeners, uh, with Muppets as our proxies. Um, do you want to introduce Lucy and Eddie, actually? Yeah, go on. Let's do it. Okay, so introduce yourselves. Yeah, Lucy, do you want to introduce yourself? Oh, gee, yeah. Thanks, Jane. I'll introduce myself. I'm Lucy. I've got glasses on, which means I'm super into nerdy things like copyright. I love copyright. And I just like mucking about with this guy here. Hi, my name is Eddie. I like copyright too. And, and unlike Lisa, I tend to open and close my mouth when I talk. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think copyright's all right. But, you know, sometimes I like to do some other things too. Like be a sheriff and go, oh. yeah. Eddie, 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 Eddie. So I was just going to say, you've got a badge, haven't you? Does that I mean, got a badge. Does yeah, that mean yeah. you go around arresting people? No, I'm here to help people. That's what sheriffs do. Okay. I'm here okay. to keep the peace. Because okay. I'd like to be here to just cause chaos. I think that's enough. We, we haven't totally refined it. You might not realise. I like it. It's coming together. We're working on it. Coming to CITV soon. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to draw, I'm going to draw us to a close. Yes, please do. So... Thank you so very much, uh, Jane and Chris, for joining us. Um, it's been wonderful having you on. It's been wonderful from my perspective as a host because having some experienced podcasters on meant that mostly you've facilitated yourselves through it, which is grand. Sorry about that. No, it's been lovely. Been on the rails. Been fabulous. Where can people find you online? Ah, uh, copyrightliteracy.org is our website. Yep. At UK Copyright Lit is our Twitter uh, handle. Joint Twitter. Yep. I'm at C. Bowie Morrison. And I'm at Jay Secker, because we're not actually the same person. No, we're not. No. So that's the best way to find us. Oh, you can just Google us. You can Google us, can't you? But not Jane with a Y. That's no, the Jane. no, no, definitely not. No. <laughs> Do not get the wrong Jane. And is there anything uh, going on, uh, publications, uh, events that you'd like to plug? Yes. We would say our regular webinar series uh, you can find on copyrightliteracy.org as well as the alt cool sig people can join that and they'll stay up to date with that we've got recently published something in navigating copyright for libraries which is a an ifla de greuter publication and that's our kind of huge great chunk of stuff about copyright literacy and why it's important. and it's open access as well and it's open access the whole book's an open access book so we can ping you the link for that yeah, I'll stick it in the show notes. Forthcoming yeah. in a publication in the journal. Of it's adult play. Oh, no, not that one. Play in adult. <laughs> yeah. When it, when it finally comes out. Yeah. Oh, and our podcast, Copyright Waffle, which we oh. are going to get you guys on at another date. So thank you very much, Jane and Chris, for joining us. And thank you to you too for listening. You can subscribe to us on all of your favourite apps, feeds, iTunes, and at our website, pedagodzilla.com. You can also follow us and get in touch via Twitter. I am at pedagodzilla. I'm at Mark Childs. And once again, your handles? I'm at C. Bowie Morrison. And I'm at Jay Secker. If you've enjoyed the episode, and we really hope you did, then why not um, write a short book about it and then have it published and then copyright it and then start leaving it in places, make bits of it really good and kind of like thievable and then take somebody to court for infringing upon your copyright and then when it's coming up in court have it well publicised other people might you know hear about the podcast and then they might share it and try and rip it off and make you lots of money or just share it and like it on Facebook and Twitter that sort of thing <laughs> sorry it's these shaggy dog stories I have to make them as um, as horrible and articulated as possible to really buy Mark up <laughs> <laughs> we love you lots and we'll see you next time on Pedagodzilla goodbye now bye bye bye